Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Dan, it's a pleasure to have you on my show, man. Uh, could you please introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? I will. Robbie, I want to thank you for being interested in the topic. I think it's great the work that you're doing, and we hope that we can get more people interested and involved uh, through uh, means such as this. My name is Dan Alcorn. I'm an attorney in Virginia and D.C. I've been affiliated with the Assassination Archive and Research Center since 1985. Uh, that's when I really became knowledgeable about the issues going on with the assassination. Um, and the Assassination Archive and Research Center was founded by Bud Fensterwald and Jim Lassar. Bud died in 1991. Jim carries on, although he has significant health problems, uh, is up in years, but Jim does what he can. I wanted to come on and talk with you about the appeal that we filed last week. We appealed a FOIA case to the DC Circuit Court of Appeals in DC, which is um, probably the second most important court uh, in the country. And uh, four members of the Supreme Court came from the DC Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, RK, do you want me to go into the substance of the case? Yeah. The uh, case involves a FOIA request that Jim Lazar and AARC did for records related to David Harold Byrd, who was the owner of the book depository building. Uh, in November 1963, Werner von Alvensleben, who was a big game hunter in Africa, and Bird was said to be at his safari operation on November 22nd, 63. The third item of our report is the Doolittle Report of our request is the Doolittle Report, uh, which was a report commissioned by President Eisenhower in 1954. He asked Jimmy Doolittle, uh, retired general uh, of the Army Air Corps to uh, do an investigation of the CIA covert function and make recommendations to the president about what the CIA should be doing. And the Doolittle Report came out in the fall of 1954. It advised that uh, the U.S. should engage in any tactics in the Cold War necessary to achieve the outcome, that there should be no rules in such a game, that we should be willing to be ruthless if necessary. This is the basic recommendation of the report. William Pauley was on that commission along with Doolittle. Doolittle was a substantial friend of David Harold Byrd, the owner of the Book Depository Building. They knew each other from uh, military aviation they were both proponents of the use of military air, air power. And that was an important constituency at the time because military air power was new. Um, so in Byrd's obituary, Doolittle is quoted as saying that they were substantial friends of longstanding. Now I want to go into I want to go into Bird and understand Bird a little bit, but I want to talk about the Doolittle report. Basically, the Doolittle report is kind of like setting the ground for what was acceptable during the Cold War. Um, certain tactics. I mean, I've learned a lot about the Cold War in the past couple of months because of the Kennedy subject. But if you're trying to understand the government and what the government was doing at the time, especially if you fall in the category of the people that blame the military-industrial complex or at least say that there's something of a, of a cover-up, which I think there's evidence of a cover-up in the Kennedy assassination. 
the Doolittle document is much like the church committee report. It just exposes a couple of things that I guess we would deem unethical. You know, what the government agencies were doing around that time period that's been shrouded in either layers of national security or something of secrecy. The report said there should be no rules in the Cold War, that we should engage in whatever tactics were necessary. Uh, it's a fairly apocalyptic uh, report. Uh, I was surprised when I first read it. Uh, it reflects a very hardline view that uh, you know, I did not know was our policy at that time. And uh, it, it's a very interesting uh, report to read. There's still parts of it that are classified. They have to do with the or organization of the CIA. As a result of the Doolittle, the Doolittle report came about because there were complaints that the CIA was too pink, was too soft, wasn't doing a hard enough job against the Soviet Union. So it comes from a hardline perspective, calling for increased covert activity uh, by the CIA. Now, do they define any of those covert activities in the Doolittle report? Uh, a lot of it is still redacted. Uh, large parts of it are still redacted as recommendations for CIA. One thing that is not redacted is that they're recommending um, more strict security at CIA. They thought that CIA was penetrated in 1954, or the hardline faction thought it was penetrated, and they wanted... Uh, stronger counterintelligence, and that's how Angleton was appointed head of counterintelligence. Dulles dispatched Angleton to be one of the people dealing with the Doolittle Committee, Doolittle, and Angleton got to know them, and Angleton was appointed chief of counterintelligence. In fact, the counterintelligence function was created because of the Doolittle report, and Angleton was appointed to that position. But the recommendation of the report is that the Office of Security at CIA be given primary responsibility for that function of rooting out spies within the CIA. And the counterintelligence uh, section was a secondary section. So, But when you get to 1959, one thing people have been pointing out is Oswald's case is being handled by the Office of Security. And why is that? Well, that's because the Office of Security was the primary uh, security function in CIA and counterintelligence was a more recently created and not the primary one. Now, would some of these things that are classified still, I mean, there's two reasons to classify something, which is they I think they deem it as an intelligence operation that they're still using today, or if it's a name that has to be either redacted, but it wouldn't keep some of those documents classified unless it was intelligence operations. So are you saying the importance of the Doolittle report is that there's probably intelligence operations or things that wouldn't just enlighten us on days back then, but also certain things that they might still be using today? They reorganized the CIA and they particularly reorganized the uh, Department of Operations, the Operations Division, the Clandestine Service. Uh, they're redacting all the recommendations about how to reorganize those functions. So it probably relates to um, the uh, internal organization of the CIA components. Now, these are being redacted under B1 and B3. B1 is national security classified information. B3 is sources and methods. 
And as the judge ruled in our case that we're appealing, that uh, B3 exemptions don't have to be classified. In fact, we were arguing that most of this material is beyond the 50-year rule of automatic declassification. The executive order on classification says it's automatically declassified at 25 years and 50 years, and only under specific circumstances can they keep it classified beyond that. We were arguing automatic declassification. The judge ruled, well, even if it is declassified, they can still withhold it as sources and methods, whether it's classified or not. They can basically withhold anything under sources and methods. So what's the recourse if they could just keep labeling it or changing the language? It seems like they know how to get out of a loophole or anything like that. We, we are not going to get this material anytime soon. And my basic message and what's happening with the Kennedy assassination documents is they clearly intend to hold on to those as long as they can. Uh, you know. Well, do you think it's just to wait for all the other researchers to die out? Like, that's why it's important that a younger generation kind of at least gets an interest into it. Because, I mean, our attention spans now, it's hard for us to care what happened last week. I'm, I'm guessing that in the Kennedy assassination documents that there are things they don't want known and they may not directly relate to the Kennedy assassination. There's a lot of material in there withheld on QJ Wen and WI Rogue, who were the assassins that were sent to the Congo in uh, 1960. And there are hundreds of pages of material from their 201 files that's being withheld. And I would imagine they don't want that out because it probably contains a lot. That was, uh, given to the church committee, it was material given to the church committee. And so under the way the JFK records were processed, that was included as JFK assassination records. Um, so I think there are subject areas that, that are in the documents that are still being withheld that they do not want to, uh, to address. If it's something that's so incriminating, why are they keeping the documents still? Why haven't they just destroyed them? We know about them destroying them during the HSCA investigation, and the AARC website even talks about destroyed documents or documents we just don't have. Because there were restrictions put on the documents because they went to the church committee or they went to the HSCA. They were actually segregated out, and they're called the segregated collection. So arrangements were made that those records would be specially guarded as separate items. They wouldn't go back in the files. And that's why we have we have these because of the congressional investigations. It's why they still exist. Now, you mentioned agreements were made. Are we talking cash checks? Because that's the first thing that went to my head. I was like, I don't see how they can get out of this type of language. And I know that the CIA worked with, you know, find ways to slip past either national security or label that on something to get it past Congress so Congress could you know, not have to declassify it. Uh, the MOUs, we occasionally see an MOU, Memorandum of Understanding, and they work out, the records board worked out one with the CIA when the records board went out of existence. And how would things work uh, from then on once the records board was gone? So it's that kind of thing that when I say something was worked out, now, could it reveal information like – I don't know if you know who Jack Downing is. 
no he had something during the cold war of setting up basically like double agents and having them do like a like a fake defector program style thing like that's his description is literally what you would look at oswald as having this whole background that would fit exactly what Jack yeah Downs where did he work from yeah is this the yeah. one at nags head yeah it is okay all right so if you have like Jack Downing, I think his profile and his career comes a little bit later than what Oswald was over in Russia for. But I don't know like when he officially got credit or when he was given the, you know, the the link for it. But Jack Downing's profile fits exactly what they were doing in the Cold War. And I'm like, it's those Cold War operations that we could, I wouldn't say draw connections to Oswald, but it might bring up some pretty revealing things with why Oswald went to Russia and tried to do all this stuff. And we know about Robert Webster with the kind of the same background and his whole defector style. Can I give you a little background on double agents that I learned from studying von Alvensleben? Please. Double agents were a specialty of the British intelligence service. That, that was the special secret the British had were running double agents. And uh, von Albensleben had started out as a British double agent in Africa, and his control officer was Malcolm Muggeridge, who later became a literary figure in Britain. And uh, uh, Malcolm Muggeridge uh, controlled von Albensleben. There became a personal dispute between the two. Oh, Muggeridge reported up the chain of command to Kim Philby, because Kim Philby handled Spain and Portugal for British intelligence during World War II, and Portuguese East Africa was part of Portugal. And uh, so under the organization system, it went up to Kemp to Kemp Philby. Uh, a personal dispute came about between von Albensleben and uh, Muggeridge. So Muggeridge recommended that the British turn von Albensleben over to the OSS to give the Americans a valuable double agent, it would sort of be, you know, it would give a gift to their American friends who they were still training on double agentry. And part of what Philby trained Angleton on was double agents. And in World War II, they were the prize possession to have. Uh, were double agents. So that knowledge then would carry on into the Cold War because you find a lot of things the OSS did then follow on into the CIA and the Cold War and the personnel often follow too. In fact, the Doolittle Report recommends that they use the people from the OSS because they're the hardened, good, experienced veterans and that's who they ought to be using. Now, when it comes with the OSS files, how revealing are those for you and your investigation as well, too, to be able to even connect some things with the Doolittle Report? Um, it is so much better to have the unredacted files like we have with the OSS files. It took a big fight before they got released, and they were only released because of the Nazi War Crimes Disclosure Act, which came after the JFK Act. The JFK Act had such an impact back in 1993 that other uh, it, groups that pursued their own disclosure acts, and there was a Nazi war crimes disclosure act because the uh, OSI, the Justice Department Permanent Office of Special Investigation to uh, in investigate Nazi war criminals, kept running up against secrecy in their investigations, uh, classified secrecy of the intelligence agencies. So 
a push was on and they passed an act, Nazi War Crimes Disclosure Act, and the OSS files got caught up in that because uh, the OSS was dealing with a lot of people who had mixed loyalties at best or negative loyalties. And uh, so there was a lot of material in OSS that was relevant to the Nazi war crime disclosure. CIA fought like heck. It took a, a, it was actually Mike DeWine was a senator at the time. He's now the governor of Ohio. And he went to bat for disclosure and pushed the CIA so hard that they agreed. Ultimately, those came out about 2007. The OSS records, they're not 100% released. There are still apparently a few that are still withheld, but the bulk of them are. And so I, I obtained the Von Alvensleben file. This is the person whose bird is with at the time of the assassination. Uh, it's everything. It, the finance reports are always fascinating because they're very detailed. It, uh, justifying the money. I mean, the money—the money is justified down to the nickel, and these elaborate expense reports, which you know, as a taxpayer, it makes you feel good that there was accounting going on. Now, how did you even get interested in the assassination? Like, how did you pick Bird as a focus for you? Um, when I became knowledgeable about it in 1985. Uh, Bernie Finsterwald, Bud Finsterwald's son, was active in local politics in Northern Virginia, where I, I live. We were both active on the Democratic Committee in our area. And so we ended up putting a law firm together. That, and then his father was semi-retired, but came into the law firm as well. Jim Lazar was working there. He came in as well. And I met them in that circumstance of putting a law firm together and then meeting Bud Finsterwald, who was our senior partner, and learning all the things he'd been involved in. And that's when, before that, my knowledge of it was simply reading what the Washington Post had to say about it, and they were not positive. Everything you would read in those kind of newspapers made it clear that this topic was forbidden and, uh, and kind of on the edge. So what was the first revealing thing for you? Um, I would have to, I would have to think if you don't have any, you know, interest in the assassination besides what's already being said in the mainstream news, and then you start coming across that there's a little bit of secrecy or national security and something just is not really adding up to the assassination. That's the first thing that got my interest. Well, I had an unusual position to watch this because I was with Bud Finsterwald. So Robert Cairo came to interview him, you know, that happened. Henry Hurt was doing a book, The Reasonable Doubt book at that time and i met henry hurt and um i began to read the literature that i thought was good literature i thought henry hurt's book for the most part was good there he went off base with some of it i think but uh he did a good job he was a senior writer for reader's digest uh, henry in fact henry uh, i think reader's digest had commissioned that book initially and then when they got the book they didn't want to go ahead with it it's surprising how much you hear about that, about someone writing something or trying to make something and the news corporations like, never mind. You know what? I don't want to touch that with a 10 foot pole. It makes people uncomfortable. Which because is because Henry, Henry Hurt became convinced that there was something going on with Oswald. He thought Oswald was somehow an intelligence. 
Now, did did his work kind of give you any information or maybe change the picture of the Oswald that you knew from, you know, the one that's depicted in a lot of stories? I didn't know much of anything about this. So for all I knew, Oswald did the shooting. Um, I have over time come to understand that the FBI was using certain forensic tests at that time that they have mostly backed off of now. So in 1963, people would say, well, there were ballistic tests, firearms tests that said Oswald you know, was the shooter. Well, the spectrographic analysis was backed off in 2005 when it was determined that you can't tell from bullet fragments whether they come uh, from the same uh, load as uh, it, it's a much broader statement that you can you can only make the statement that the fragments are from a large uh, batch of ammunition. You can't say it's the same uh, narrow batch. Can't get the specifics. Yes, and the FBI backed off of the use of that test, and they don't use it anymore. And that's one of the tests that justified the single bullet theory, that all the fragments came from the same bullet. And uh, so that's backed off. It turns out these uh, ballistic tests where they uh, examine the striations on the bullet and see how it matches to the barrel, those have been determined. They're not scientific tests. They are the opinion of the examiner, and there's a big issue currently in in law about forensic testing, and, and they can't say that those ballistic tests have the same validity as, say, a DNA test. All they can say is it's the opinion of the examiner that they match. There's currently work underway to try to get a scientific basis for it, but they don't have that currently. That was another test that we used in the Oswald case. Uh, I think the only one that's still out there is the fingerprint off the barrel under the stock. And that fingerprint wasn't found until the second examination when they'd taken the rifle to Washington. I think it wasn't found in Dallas for whatever reason. When you get down to it, there really isn't any scientific tests that proves the case against Oswald. And that's consistent with what Hoover, you know, there was a telephone call between Hoover and LBJ on Saturday morning, the morning after the assassination, when LBJ goes into his office and Jagger Hoover calls him and he's briefing LBJ and LBJ, the first thing he wants to know is, were they shooting at me, you know, too? And Hoover assures him they don't have any evidence of that. But Hoover says, we don't have a very strong case against Oswald, probably not enough to stand up in court. That's what Hoover says. Now, the tape, you know, disappeared <laughs> or got erased, but there's a transcript that was made before the tape was erased that has a statement by Hoover. So you have to understand that the case against Oswald was known to be very weak. Well, they were charging him for killing a cop, not killing Kennedy. And I mean, within 24 hours, they already deemed that there was no conspiracy, which is like you're not even going to look for a getaway driver or just anybody that might have an association. They charged him that night with killing the president. That, that's the arraignment where he's questioned about it. He's brought out and questioned about it. And he does that double take look 
which to me was a, a in the, inter- in the interview. Puzzlement. Yeah, but originally they were charging him for just killing a cop. They weren't telling him. And that's when the reporter asked him, like, you're in there for killing the president. He goes, I have not been charged with that at all because they hadn't told him that. They were bringing him in for killing a cop. Yeah, well, what did he call it? That short and sweet hearing. I bet it was short and sweet. Yeah, once he starts talking. I think they gave him a lot of time, surprisingly. I was like, I wouldn't have gave any press time for that. Uh, there's a memo from Hoover, Jager Hoover, dated 4 p.m., November 22nd, and he says, I've talked to the Attorney General, Robert Kennedy, and assured him that we have the man who's done it, and he's the only man who's done it. Now, this is 4 p.m. Eastern. The shooting happened at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. In other words, the case was over in two and a half hours, according to Hoover. And, you know, to me, it looks like it, it may well have been preconceived, but anyway. Did you ever hear the phone call between um, Hoover and LBJ where they're talking about Jack Ruby wanting to be taken to Washington, D.C. to take a polygraph test? And uh, LBJ asked him, do you trust the polygraph test? And he says, no, I don't trust it a damn bit. And I'm like, the Innocence Project exposed that those polygraph tests were basically junk science. So they're it's like how allowed, long- They're not allowed in court. Yeah. So it's like, how long were they just using junk science as evidence? I mean, in that situation in the investigation, the neutron star activation analysis turned out to be junk science. I mean, a lot of this stuff sounds really, really technical, and it's hard for the general public to even understand what those are. But if you have a bunch of people that are working for the government, and back then government, I would say, was, you know, nobody expected anything going on wrong in the government. So they just kind of looked at it like those, those officials words are good enough for me. And it was like, yeah, but that's kind of like built on a whole case of straws. I mean, three shots, all of them fired at Kennedy is what Hoover said to LBJ. Then you have the James Tag bullet. Okay. So one missed. So then there's two shots. I'm like, by that you're a hundred percent. This is what happened has now turned to like 50%. So let's talk about a real investigation. Well, think about the fact that there were three spent bullet shells on the floor, on the sixth floor. There was a full cartridge in the rifle. There was a fourth one in the rifle. But those are the only four cartridges that they found in the whole search, which means Oswald had no other ammunition. Yeah, he took four bullets to kill the president and pray to God all four bullets. Practice, because everything I've read says to be proficient as a gunman as a shooter you've got to practice all the time and you gotta you gotta stay up on your shooting well that's where we get marina oswald's statement that said that oswald was shooting leaves in the backyard yeah no one's come up with spent shells no one's come up with other cartridges all you have are those three and those three the the testimony in the warren commission that's something that came up in our investigation that we're doing because there's another rifle. I don't know if you've heard of this. I've heard that there was another rifle, but I have not found any evidence to support that there was besides Joe. I don't know if it's Josiah Thompson or Robert Groden. I think there's a picture of one being handed down. What I mean about another rifle, there's another rifle that uses ammunition that is essentially the same as the Manlicker Carcano ammunition. And that rifle is called a Manlicker Schonauer. And a Manlicker Schonauer is the finest hunting right, rifle of that era. It was a very expensive Austrian rifle. The, the reason I came across it was reading about big game hunter von Alvensleben. It was his favorite rifle, the Manlicker Schonauer. And then it was it was particularly known because the ammunition was 
identical to the Manlicher Carcano ammunition. Now, as I researched further on this, I found it came up in the Warren Commission investigation by John McCloy, commissioner, member of the Warren Commission, known as the chairman of the board of the establishment, to give you some idea of his background. He was chairman of Chase Manhattan Bank. And he asked the FBI firearms expert, Frazier, in his testimony, could those hulls have been from a Mandlicker Schonauer rifle, those three hulls? Because the way they did this testimony is they came into Frazier and he said, well, they handed me three hulls and they said they were found on the sixth floor. And so I looked at them and I said, yeah, they're Mandlicker Carcano. He tells uh, uh, McCloy, McCloy says, could they be Mandlicker Schonauer? And uh, Frazier says, I'm not familiar with that gun. And McCloy says, well, I am because I own one. And uh, Frazier says, well, I don't know anything about that. And later McCloy comes back and he tries to get the diameter of the bullet. Say, could that be a Mandlicker Schonauer? And Frazier says, I, do, I don't know anything about that rifle. So that's where the investigations stood and stands at the time. Now, is it a common gun to have back then, or would it be just with close associations to, like, I guess? No, it's a very elite rifle. That's that's why McCloy has one. McCloy was the high commissioner of Germany, which means he was put in to run Germany after World War II. He spent two years running Germany. And I would imagine that rifle came about because probably some hunting that he did while he was over there in Germany. Uh, now, do you believe that there's an association with that rifle somehow ending up in the book depository building? No, there is. There, on the gun blogs, I'll just tell you what they say. There are some people who say the holes are more consistent with Manlicher Schonauer ammunition than Manlicher Carcano. I don't know. I'm not that much of an expert, but that's what some of the gun people say that uh, and we'll leave it at that i'm just trying to bring up bring in the connection with bird like if bird owns the book depository building how easy would it be to be able to stash one of those rifles in there yeah von alvensleben was in dallas at some point in late 1963 according to articles in the dallas morning news uh, von alvensleben made a visit to dallas the scenario is that Bird is said to have gone to Safari Landia at the time of the assassination. I say reported to because we now have an inconsistency that's come up as to his presence there. And it said that uh, von Alvensleben had come to Dallas at the end of the hunting season in 1963 and, and was guest of Bird was Bird's guest and attended various social functions like a debutante ball in, in Dallas with Bird. So we don't know when von Alvensleben was in Dallas, but the timing, according to the reports we have, is late 63, early 64. Apparently he stayed some time uh, in Dallas. His wife came too. They were both written up. He was written up as a hunter and she was written up as a you know, wife of the hunter sort of on the social pages of the Dallas Morning News. Now, did anybody investigate his associations, like Bird's power and connectivity and all? 
No, he he only came up in the investigation uh, when the FBI was putting together a, a white paper on the book depository building, and I think they may have interviewed him briefly, but uh, there's nothing in nothing in the investigation about him. Uh, after at some point after the assassination, Bird had the sniper's window removed from the building and taken to his mansion and set up in his mansion for display why <laughs> how many people is he having at his mansion where he wants to turn into a museum they say he was a colorful figure he drove yellow cadillacs okay but uh i just want to check his garage real quick you got any ram uh, rambler station wagons in here just just want to know asking no, for a friend the, uh, no the uh, the washington times reported uh, a few years ago that um uh, High-powered social gatherings in Dallas took place in in front of the window at Bird's house, and they said they were told this by the president of the Dallas Morning News. See, Bird was in a milieu of the top people in Dallas. I mean, this is the power structure in Dallas. Not just because Bird made money in oil. Bird was involved. It's it's really a very interesting story. He was partner in the 1929 uh, East Texas oil strike uh, where they finally struck oil out in East Texas. And he was partner uh, in some of those oil wells out there that came in. And this is the oil that gave the U.S. the ability to have almost unlimited oil going into World War II. And actually, Hitler ran out of oil and we didn't. And a lot of that has to do with East Texas oil strike which Byrd was involved in at that time. H.L. Hunt got into the oil business because of that strike. Byrd's partner, Dad Joyner, who was a very colorful figure as well, had, had sold more shares in his oil wells than he had. And so he was getting sued. And H.L. Hunt came along and said, I'll handle all your suits for you. You know, I'll pay you lump sum for all your oil holdings. And... Uh, and then uh, I'll handle all the lawsuits. And so Joyner took the deal, and that's how H.L. Hunt made his oil fortune. Uh, it, it all had to do with that. So, but Bird, Bird's wife also was a, a carer, and um, her family owned a 10,000-acre ranch that, as they say in Dallas, became downtown and uptown Dallas. Uh, in other words, their ranch turned into the major part of the north part of Dallas. So they're called the old money. They got the old money. They basically helped lay in the first brick, I would say. The, they had a very large fortune, probably a lot more than Bird did. But you know, that would be a sensitive topic, so we won't get into that topic. But uh, D.H. Bird took his uh, oil money and put it into aviation, which he was very interested in. He was one of the first private plane holders in Texas. He ended up giving the Texas authorities four or five airplanes, uh, so they would have some airplanes too. And he was very involved in aviation. He says in his autobiography. He wrote a book? I, I don't recommend it for uh, its literary <laughs> merit, but it does have, it has a lot of information about him. 
And uh, one of the things it says is he had a close friend, he calls him a close friend from Germany named Ernst Udet, U-D-E-T. And I looked up Ernst Udet. Ernst Udet was the number one fighter ace in Germany in World War I, more than Hermann Goring. So Hermann Goring kept him very close. And Hermann Goring made Udet his number two at the Luftwaffe when uh, Hitler took over. Ernst Udet was the head of research and development for the Luftwaffe under Hermann Goring, and he was D.H. Byrd's close friend. And, and he be they became friends because Udet had toured the United States as a barnstormer back in the barnstorming days, and uh, they got to know each other. And Byrd tells, you know, this story of unknown proportions about who uh, he bird was vacationing in Czechoslovakia around the time the Germans were going to invade Czechoslovakia and Ernst Udet called him and said get out of there because our troops are coming and uh, bird says he appreciated the warning now did bird make any statements about the assassination besides the statement he gave to the report or anything but did he have any certain things that were mentioned by other people, whether it was in conversation or whether, I mean, it's obviously that would be hearsay, but I'm just curious if he ever really talked about, it. I mean, someone took a shot from his building, his work, you know, I have to think that that would be something, especially if you're putting the, the window in your house for parties and showing it off. There's a video online you can find in which bird talks about, he actually recreates the shooting that's a sick dude. That's a sick dude. That's not funny at all. I'm I'm not saying that at all. Uh, someone tried to set fire to the building in the early 70s. Someone set fire to every floor of the building. And so he was interviewed by the local news after the fire. And he said, well, let's go up to the sixth floor where the action took place. And I'll show you, you know, where the action was. And he said, I mean, where Oswald shot the president. And he goes up and he recreates, I think he aims out of the wrong window. Someone out of pay close. Man, it's it's smelling a lot like when you're asking OJ if he did it. You know, he's kind of like, no, but if I did, and it's like, well, like, what the hell's going on? People make mistakes, you know, it's human to make mistakes. But uh, he recreates, you know, a firing stance. And he said, it wouldn't be a difficult shot. I'm a hunter. I understand guns. You know, anybody could take him out from here, you know, calls it an easy shot. And yeah, so there was that, but Bird was stuck with the building. He ultimately was really kind of trying to get rid of the building. My understanding is he didn't want it to be associated with the assassination. He was trying to sell it without mentioning that it was the Texas School Book Depository building. And he, he didn't want to make that a fill. He believed that the assassination made Dallas look really bad and that the best thing to do was just forget about it. Why didn't he just have it destroyed then? Uh, because he had money invested. He had owned it since 1939 and he had money invested in it. And he was trying to get a million dollars or so out of it. And um, he ultimately did find a buyer. The fellow from Nashville bought it uh, Aubrey Mayhew is a music promoter, but, um, and then he defaulted and the 
it went back to Bird, and then Bird had to sell it again. It eventually was taken over by Dallas County, and it's the Six Four Museum. Dallas County now is is what the building is. Oh, I thought it was the Six Four Museum. That's one floor, but other floors now. I know it's owned by Dallas County. But to tell a little, the important uh, birds aviation took him after World War II, what happened was they had built bombers at Dallas-Fort Worth. Dallas-Fort Worth was the site of one of the big bomber plants in the U.S. for World War II. And what Roosevelt did for World War II is he just designated, he appointed a board for defense production and they designated where the plants were going to go. And those are the places like Seattle and Boeing. It's places where after the war, you know, aerospace industry developed. So Dallas Fort Worth was one of the places where bombers were built. And um, in fact, the 8th Air Force was headquartered at Carswell Air Force Base at Dallas Fort Worth. The 8th Air Force was the main bomber force that we sent to England to bomb Germany. And the 8th Air Force is one of the strengths of the U.S. military effort in World War II. And because, you know, the, we bombed Germany consistently once we started in World War II. And Jimmy Doolittle was the commander of it at one point. Carl Spatz was the commander of it at another point. These are legends in aviation history. Uh, and it, it was... a great power there was a very strong aviation community down in dallas so what happens after the war the group that's building bombers at dallas fort worth want to continue their airplane construction you know they want to continue the business the government orders all dried up because the war was over and you know we stopped building bombers so they created a company to continue the work called timco texas engineering manufacturing company and, but they needed money, and so they went to Bird for money to finance it, and he agreed to finance it. And uh, that was Timco started at the end of the war. They weren't doing too well. It was kind of a shaky existence until 1952, and the Korean War came along. And when the Korean War came along, it was a crisis. It was a national security emergency because we were basically losing the Korean War at the beginning. And uh, so at that point, um, uh, contracts flowed into Dallas-Fort Worth and to Timco, and uh, the Air Force set up a contracting arrangement called Big Safari. I, I can't make this up. I mean, it's uh, the Big Safari contracting program was to select five contractors around the country and they were no bid sole source contracts uh, to do uh, aviation work for the Air Force. They said it was classified with sensitive work. And uh, are you drawing the lines to the U2 program like I'm doing in my head right now? The Well, Timco was given one of these contracts. And so Timco was the beneficiary of Big Safari. Uh, Walter Jones, that conservative congressman from North Carolina, brought up Big Safari on the House floor in 2017, I think it was, and he said it was still operating. 
this program of no bid sole source contracts was still operating in 2017 and he complained bitterly about it. But what this program ended up doing was outfitting reconnaissance aircraft. There's a series called RC-135s. It basically took a Boeing like 707 and converted it to military use. And then they did electronic um, intercept. They outfitted it with specialized electronics. And these were the planes that would fly up against the border of adversary countries provoke an electronic response show a defense response and then record the electronic transmissions it's a part of reconnaissance and intelligence uh, is that kind of activity and uh, bird's company timco became expert in outfitting the electronics on these planes secret electronics and um so, and that specialty has continued, and those plants outside of Dallas are still doing that today in a new iteration. It's called, the field is called electronic warfare. Uh, and uh, they have an offshoot now called information warfare that came out of electronic warfare that includes all the internet. Cybersecurity and all that types of issues that go on now because we're entering a digital space. Yeah, the use of the internet to achieve, you know, propaganda goals and things like that. That's a really big issue, which is like stuff I learned about from like the church committee and even looking into Hollywood's past, having the influence of J. Edgar Hoover's G-Men and everything and onto the Hollywood screen. Propaganda, I think there's like small scale versions of it, which is like even with Walt Disney introducing FBI agents and Mickey Mouse cartoons so the kids can look at the FBI agents, but then it became like ratting out people that were striking up labor unions because and calling them communists to have them like arrested and deported and stuff. And I'm like, that's where I draw the line. Like it went deep pretty fast or it escalated quickly. And when it comes to propaganda, I mean, there's plenty of films we can watch. Lone Survivor is a good example, but there's a lot of operations and stuff like just, I wouldn't call it programming, but there's just stuff that's seeded in there. And I know every country does a form of propaganda, but there's, I don't know if they can block those on intelligence methods, but it's to me as a citizen, I just feel like that's an issue that we should know about. Well, what I learned from researching bird that was new was that the owner of the book depository building was deeply involved in classified U S government contracting activity. Uh, And that's because of all of his donations. He probably built up connections. Well, that was this company, Timco, became expert in that. And then they had an electronics section that became the company called E-Systems. The company was E-Systems, and that was a bird company. And I know that one because here in Northern Virginia, E-Systems was the first defense contractor that came out uh, into Northern Virginia and built a facility in the 1950s. And the Washington Post says the E-Systems is so close to the CIA that you can't tell where one starts and the other one ends. Uh, so E-Systems is a serious um, player. On the CIA website, you can go to their reading room, their electronic reading room, and there's material about E-Systems. In 1975, because of the church committee, the CIA had to unload Air America, the proprietary airline. They felt they should sell it. So the uh, the CIA solicited E-Systems 
to buy Air America from them. And E-System didn't want the whole thing, but they wanted the Air Asia component, which was the ground maintenance part of Air America. So they bought that from the CIA and the, the uh, Novation Agreement for that transaction is on the CIA website. You, When you read the Church Committee report, do you remember where it says like non-profited organizations that were influenced by either the CIA? And I, I'm curious if some of those names were kind of like not like offshore accounts, but just other organizations that are still under the CIA, but with a different name. Like if you filed a Freedom of Information Act request for e-systems, would you get a lot of documents about the CIA that seems more than just a connection, kind of like if it was a company just under – like it's an umbrella. The CIA is on, like basically an umbrella. So you got all these little corporations that were still maybe tied together with the CIA, but there was no connection. So during those church committee reports, they just – created a whole term of like these organizations that are connected to the CIA, but under different names or they're influenced by the CIA. So I'm curious if you could notice that they might be storing not documents, but they might have information if you file a Freedom of Information Act request. It's like putting a document like a JM Wave document that comes out in the 22 release. It could just have Oswald's name on it. And then you can redact the whole thing and keep it classified because it could be an intelligence issue. But it, it's a Lee Harvey Oswald document technically too. But if it's all about JM Wave, then they don't have to release it because it's an intelligence operation. So if you have a CIA document it, and it has e-systems on it, could you get something from e-systems that has a lot of information on the CIA? Well, we didn't have that problem because they wouldn't give us anything. So <laughs> they didn't. <laughs> could have saved me a long-winded uh, rant there. <laughs> right, right. And uh, but on their website, as I say, the FOIA reading room, there's material about e-systems. One is that when Robert Gates became deputy director of CIA, he did a tour of the country, different places. So he went to Dallas and there's there are papers recommending how he, who he should visit in Dallas. And at one point they had him set up where he would make three visits. He would land in Dallas and then he would go to E-Systems and make an appearance there. He'd go to the Dallas Morning News and do an interview with them. Then he'd go to the World Affairs Council and speak and that's who he would meet with when he was in dallas and e-systems was one of the three stops he would make that was his schedule at one point now is there any recourse you guys have to be able to get documents away from them like is the judge working with you do you feel like your litigation is more one-sided like nobody's really trying to benefit you at all because they can just keep declass or keep classifying things and they could destroy as much as they want and there's nothing we can do about it it's a bad situation, and it's particularly bad because in 1984, the CIA was able to get past something called the CIA Information Act of 1984. Now, think about this in terms of George Orwell, you know, and a law that's labeled CIA Information Act of 1984. What it did was to make exempt from FOIA all their operational files, and that means all clandestine files, everything about what the work they do secretly is exempt from FOIA, period. And that I don't, a lot of people don't know that. If you make a FOIA request, they will not search the operational files and they will not tell you. They, they might cite that information act, but they won't tell you what it says. So it's not reachable under FOIA with a couple of exceptions. If you're asking about yourself, you can still get a search for privacy material. Also, if it was this 
subject of investigation by the Congressional Intelligence Committee, although it's a specific subject of investigation, then you can get it. And we were going on the basis that the Kennedy assassination, of course, has been investigated by almost everybody at one time or the other. So there are plenty of investigations. But in our case, the judge ruled that because Byrd and Von Alvensleben were not the specific subject of a prior investigation, we couldn't even get a search of operational files. So in other words, there is no public access to this information. The reason it may be important is my, my guess is Von Alvensleben, having been a prime double agent in World War II, then he went to work for the US consulate in Portuguese East Africa, he did work for them after the war. So my guess is he would end up as a CIA asset in what became Mozambique later, Portuguese East Africa. And what that would show is that when Byrd was over there at the time of the assassination, uh, he was with someone who may have had intelligence connections. Now, the new wrinkle... The new wrinkle is von Alvensleben's uh, nephew, Christian von Alvensleben, is a, apparently a famous photographer in Germany. And he was there at the time. He was at Safarilandia in November 1963. And he took photographs, which he's turned into a photographic collection that's on the internet. It's called Stories by Christian von Alvensleben. Mozambique, 1963, and he has recaptioned his photographs, and he captions one Colonel Bird arriving, you know, a few days later, J.F. Kennedy is shot from his building, is what the caption says. The only problem is the person in the photograph is not D.H. Bird. Are you looking at it right now? Uh, no, I don't have it up on the... We pause for a second to get the share screen going, but Dan has a photo here. Dan, if you want to explain this. Yes, this is a photo that is listed in Christian von Alvensleben's uh, uh, photo essay called The Leopard's Trail. And he uh, captions this as Colonel Byrd arriving at the camp in Safarilandia in 1963, a few days before John F. Kennedy is shot from Byrd's building. Except to my, you know, I, this is not Byrd. This person is not D.H. Byrd. So it's either a misidentification, which is a possibility. I did email Christian von Alvensleben to point this out and ask him for any further information. And his response was the name of a bookstore where I could buy his book. But uh, I get so many of those with some researchers and I'm like, thanks. That's what I want. I'm, I'm not a guy. I understand the need to sell books. So I understand that. Uh, but there was no explanation forthcoming. So I don't know if it's a mistake on his part or if this is someone else, but I thought someone seeing this might know who this is. We don't know who this is. Do you have a little rolly thing in the middle of your mouse? Yes. You can roll forward. If you roll it upwards, it'll zoom in. Bring him in nice and close. He looks like he owns a couple of illegal animals. Uh, this photo essay is... Uh, really disturbing in terms of the violence against the animals. Um, 
I believe it. That's why they made movies about hunting people and see how they ship those animals over there. Christian von Albensleben said he turned against hunting because of his experience there. And I think most people have turned against safari hunting. But there's also a photograph of a dead elephant and they have written on the elephant shot by D.H. Bird on December 7th, 1963. Now, do we have any documents on D.H. Bird, like any that we still need to get? Uh, the only thing I found on him was, as I say, when the FBI was doing a paper on the book depository building, and I think they interviewed him. They called him Colonel Bird. Uh, but that's it? The, I'm not aware of anything else. And as a result, what's happened is that because he was not subject of investigation in the investigations, then there's really little on him in the JFK collection. Also, Van Alvin's been the same thing, nothing in the JFK Act collection. So the archives doesn't want to do anything. And that's an major issue in the San Francisco case, the Mary Farrell case, uh, is that the archives isn't pursuing other material. Their archives attitude is if it wasn't in the original collection, then there's nothing to be done about it, which forecloses bringing in any new subject. You're just limited, in other words, to what the prior investigations did. And anything new can't be included in JFK Act because theoretically we could get by this uh, operational file problem if we use JFK Act standards. I'm just going to hit stop share on that real quick. But is there is there a way to be able to put a lot of those JFK Act standards on other things as well too? Like I, I understand the Mary Farrell site's lawsuit might be a little bit focused because I think their whole thing is just trying to get those declassified documents. I even suggested adding most material into the public domain as well too footage photos things that people claim that you can buy in a book and things that people claim as a museum like things that are they shouldn't be charging 15 dollars a second which is a price that was shot my way for an educational thing so i think you know adding public domain stuff on there but also if there's other records even associations of names that pop up that there might be files on i think they should go under the same precautions that you can get with the JFK Act. And even they're not following the JFK Act 100% to a T. What I found was that there's a lot of open source material that isn't necessarily government file material. And when I researched Byrd and von Alvensleben, uh, I did not limit myself to government records because, you know, when you look for information, information comes and various ways. And there are a lot of open source uh, information, and especially with the internet. Now there's access to a lot of um, open source material. So, but the Records Act and the FOIA are all designed to deal with government records. So if it's not in the government record, it doesn't exist. Uh, but that's doesn't describe reality. Well, the issue with not going off of a government record is if you try to bring it up as evidence, people would just dismiss it. I think people get focused on government records because at law, there's a presumption that government records are okay and they accept them. And if you have a government record, you can get it admitted in court pretty easily. 
because it is a government record. I think that's what happened. But what worries me about what's happening with the JFK case is we're being limited to the initial investigation, which may or may not have even come close to the mark. And anyone who's out there, you know, pursuing uh, solutions that weren't disposed of previously by prior investigations isn't going to get anywhere because they say there's nothing to that. So what makes you hopeful for still trying to go for documents if you know so much about, like, even the JFK documents? I've talked to various different opinions that they think that they'll never be released or they're going to be released soon. I honestly think it's going to be probably another 10, 15, 20 years, and there might not even be a good reason why. I just – I don't even know why they're still keeping it secret for almost 60 years now. I think it's a mistake to think that release of the remaining records is going to solve the case, quote-unquote. I would imagine it will not be solved when those records are released um, because I think I think the government age I mean if something really bad was done it wasn't memorialized in memos <laughs> and records I they would have did cover your ass man they would have cut they would have destroyed it they would have did something that would have incriminated them somehow but i think it just paints a better picture of the times back then i mean we know a lot about certain documents now that have revealed at least a better picture than what the warren commission stated you know my only hope is that we can at least talk about even the hsca which i still consider flawed but i also consider they proved a whole hell of a lot that the warren commission got wrong or lied about yeah my concern just to put it out there, the concern about Byrd and von Alvensleben. Von Alvensleben served as an assassin for Nazi leader Heinrich Himmler in 1933, according to the OSS records. And so Byrd was in the company of a convicted assassin because von Alvensleben was convicted by the Austrians of attempted assassination. Uh, Bird was in his company around the time of the assassination. And to me, that's something that needs to be investigated. Agreed. <laughs> Agreed. I, that name, Hemmler, has sounded so familiar. I don't know where he's from, though. Uh, which name? The Hemmler. I've heard that name multiple times. Oh, Heinrich Hemmler. Yeah, you'll have to. It'll get you into Nazi history, which unfortunately I've had Let's to get into. Talk about the Thule Society. Well, Heinrich Himmler was um, the head of the SS. He became the head of the SS. He was one of Hitler's top three or four. Goring was another one. And uh, the way Hitler came to power, he started with the police. He was able to organize the police. And Himmler was head of the Bavarian military police and and then hitler got into power and they consolidated the police and they had the brown shirt operation the military was actually took them a while to get the german military to be loyal to them but uh heinrich himmler was head of the ss i mean i you know it's hard to say anything more and the fact that von alvensleben you know was in a position to be given orders by Heinrich Himmler would indicate that von Alvensleben had a very high position, you know, which makes sense. His family is an aristocratic family, a very respected German family, the von Alvensleben. They go back hundreds of years. 
they're Junkers, J-U-N-K-E-R, and that's Prussia, uh, the Prussian estates, and that's where they come from. Um, they had, he had a complicated political history. His uh, father was leader of the conservative movement in Germany, a leading conservative. His father, who also was named Werner von Aldensleben, appears in uh, Scheurer's book, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. Have you ever heard of that book? I've heard of it. I haven't read it, though. The classic book, William Shirer. And Werner von Aldensleben, that name is in there because he was with Hitler the night that Hitler took power in Germany. Now, he was there as a representative of the outgoing chancellor um, and sent him as a representative to be in Hitler's group that night. And then there's an interplay that happened between them and uh, Hitler got very excited and thought there would be an attempt to prevent him coming to power and he took steps to prevent that. And uh, But uh, this family at times has played very central roles uh, in German affairs. Now, you wanted to come on to talk about the litigation and everything. Is there something that audience members can do, much like, like with even with the establishment of the ARRB was write your congressman type deal. Is there something that people can help out with when it comes to being able to aid your case of getting the documents that you're requesting for? Well, if you're interested, learn more about the Assassination Archive and Research Center. Uh, it, we have a website. We have a good website that has a good bit of material. Uh, we have uh, lots of documents and records. Uh, we don't have a way to display them. Uh, in a library-type format or an archive format, uh, but we do have a lot of material, and so it's, it's a resource that you should come to. Rex Bradford with Mary Farrell, you know, has put a lot online, and most of that material that he's put online came from the AARC materials uh, under an arrangement where AARC allowed Mary Farrell to scan that material and put it up. I think I heard maybe you were commenting recently that uh, not all the material is on the Mary Farrell site. Yeah, when I'm speaking to uh, ARB members like David Montague and a couple of those, I see their files of things that they were able to look through through their time at the Assassination Records Review Board. But if you click some of those links, they just go to an error page or document not found. And that's from the Mary Farrell site where it shows they have the listings, but then the links to those documents, they're just not there, whether the page was taken down or it hadn't been released yet. And the re reason for that is that there is no comprehensive online collection of the records that have been released. The government hasn't done it. The, the government is releasing these new releases that are coming out here recently. But the government hasn't digitized the whole JFK Act collection. I think they were asked to come up with a proposal to do that in one of the presidential memorandum. And they're supposed to be working on a digitization plan. But I, I have to credit Rex, Brad, Rex Bradford, who's a talented programmer, figured out how to put government records online en masse before the government did it. And he did it, you know, with the Mary Farrell collection, and he deserves credit for that. 
but the government really ought to be doing this. The government has the resources to do it. And the fact that they haven't done it indicates, you know, a only partial commitment to transparency because it's not that hard and it's certainly not that hard for the government to do it. Shit, Malcolm Blunt, I mean, not Malcolm Blunt, Bart Camp just scanned in seven, seven years worth of Malcolm Blunt's documents onto a Google Drive thing. You know, he spent a lot of time doing that and it's hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of documents. So it's like, that's not an easy task for one person to do. Yeah, and AARC helped with that too. And, um, but the government is the one with the resources. And if they were operating in good faith here, they would be doing this. And the fact that they aren't, you know, tell something. And the president's asked them to come up with a digitization plan. So hopefully something will be forthcoming. But you also mentioned on something I was watching reclassification that they reclassify. Yeah, you can take a put. That's I forgot where I heard that from, but I've read that as well too. There was an issue with reclassification on certain documents that were released. Whether they came across it and realized, it. yeah, they started doing that after nine eleven. Nine eleven was a real break point because in nine eleven they actually sent a representative to our FOIA group. We had a pro FOIA group of the different interest groups around Washington, and they actually sent someone with a message from I don't know who it was from, but they said. You know, they were from the government and they said, because of 9-11, we want you to know we're just going to have to close off all access to everything and it's not going to be as open as it was and there's no choice. You know, this is a crisis and an emergency. So I responded. I said, well, the only group that did anything effective on 9-11 were the citizens on the plane on the United flight, you know, that fought back and brought it back and they acted because they heard on cell phones what was going on and figured out what was going on from information they got and the public is actually a great resource for the government and when law enforcement gets in trouble on a case they put out a call for public help you know the public tell what they know and why don't you look at the public as and, you know, something that can be a great benefit to you by keeping them informed on what's happening. And he said, oh, well, that's not the way they're thinking in the government. There's a, I want to ask you a question. There's a problem in the 22 release when I mean, the problem to me is just when you look at the garrison files, like things that are released about garrison, a lot of these documents are titled garrison's attempts to embarrass the agency, which to me is like a mind opener for a lot of people when it comes to the government where I'm like, does that sound like a government that works with the people or for the people it kind of seems like they're looking at certain individuals as problems. And I'm not getting conspiratorial with any you know dangerous action there. I'm just saying you have government documents that are labeling you know, your attempt to embarrass the agency. That's sounds a lot like Johnson asking about shots being fired. If any were worried about him, you know, like that's a, it's a more self-preservation aspect and their own identity based on what the truth is. Yeah. There are a lot of hard feelings about the garrison investigation, you know, as, as it went on, I have to say the garrison kind of described what existed in Dallas you know, that we've seen in terms of the government contracting and the defense and activities and the intelligence activities. 
he described it. He didn't name it. He didn't know the names of the individual actors, but that's basically what he was going after uh, in, in a lot of his work. And I would have to say he, he sort of had it. He didn't have all the details, but he had a lot of what was going on. And um, is there a place where people can find some of your work or any other links you'd like to promote? You've given me enough of your time here today, Dan. The AARC website, which is aarclibrary.org, would be a good place. And a lot of other people's work there as well. Do you have any personal sites, any other things for like books or anything? Uh, no. Okay. Well, I'll link the AARC site in there. I've used the, some of their documents as resources as well, too. Um, there's a lot of good stuff on there. There are libraries. Rex Bradford uh, has done some library work for us on AARC, so there are some archives there as well of information, but it's not comprehensive. I mean, anyone should be warned that if you're going to do research on these, you're, it's not going to be a comprehensive research. You're going to have to be careful. A lot of scattering, a lot of searching around the internet, looking on multiple various sites, trying to find where everything leads to. It's like pulling a thread. Well, yes. And the fact that the research is difficult indicates that the government with the resources doesn't want to make it easy because they could make, they could make it easy and simple. The other thing about the releases that I found, there are some documents that they're releasing that are totally, they're hundreds of pages that are totally redacted. They never get mentioned. That's what I told Tom Samalock. I was like, who the hell's doing this? I, there's a page that up, looks like it was upside down. He had to read it through a mirror and it looked like it was scanned like 50 times to where you can't even read it. Everything just looks like it's just, it's a bad copy or bad scan. It. And I'm like, what is that? It doesn't take that long to scan it correctly. It's been called to my attention the W.I. Rogue and Q.J. Wynn material. Hundreds of pages are totally redacted about that. So that's a very sensitive area. And there may be other areas like that. It becomes relevant because there are issues still going over the Lumumba, the killing of Patrice Lumumba in the Congo, who was killed on January 17th, 1961. And the death of Dag Hammarskjöld. And Dag Hammarskjöld. There's a UN investigation going of Dag Hammarskjöld, and the judge conducting it has even requested the U.S. government to provide those documents that are being withheld under the JFK Act, and it got no response or no positive response from the government. And uh, you know there are there are some other issues that are out there that uh, the government is delaying and refusing to respond. And you look at that period of time, those were two allies of Kennedy. Kennedy planned to use Lumumba as a uh, ally of the U.S. and the Congo. I don't know if you know the story, but Lumumba was killed three days before Kennedy became president. Kennedy was planning to work with Lumumba. Kennedy had sent a new ambassador to the Congo immediately. Edward Goulion was sent to be ambassador in the Congo. And this was the young State Department fellow that Kennedy met in Vietnam. And when he went in the 1950s to Vietnam, 
and he was assigned a State Department aide, and it was Gulian. And Gulian explained to him the politics of Vietnam and Southeast Asia, and basically educated Kennedy to the colonial failure that the French were going to have, and also this is how Kennedy developed his view about Vietnam and his reluctance to go to war in Vietnam. So Kennedy became friends with him and then immediately dispatched him to the Congo immediately when Kennedy became president and Gulian was there. But of course, Lumumba was now dead. And uh, uh, Doug Hammarskjöld was killed in September of 61. Yep, his plane went uh, down. Right. Found Gulian. on a termite mound with his hand clenched in some grass. And if you believe the people that say there was playing cards scattered around him and there was an ace of spades in his collar. I've seen a photograph. I mean, isn't there a photograph of that? I, I haven't I've seen, seen the photograph. Yeah, I think it. Uh, Susan Williams did a book on that. Who killed yeah, she's, Gold? She's the leading it's, authority. It's, it's a good book and she's very good. And um, she also knows a lot about Lumumba. And so there's some issues that are still outstanding, but um, yes, we certainly have not gotten close to full disclosure. Well, I'm going to link the AARC um, link in the description of this episode so people be able to check out some things and maybe it might dig them and do a little bit of digging, be able to find some interesting articles on there. Um, I know you said it wasn't comprehensive, but I think a lot of people, if they're truly interested, they'll start digging a little bit. Uh, and it, hopefully we can get a petition together to get the government to try and, you know, at least make it comprehensive. I mean, the fact that they haven't scanned in or digitized a lot of this stuff as well, too, is an issue I brought up in the past. I mean, it does show that they're unwilling to really put in the effort, their effort. It's left up to the research community to be able to do all the digging so far. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not anti-archives. I'm, I'm a little bit anti-archive. But, but what I found is they get pressured by the agencies, and particularly the CIA pressures them, and uh, they end up giving in to the pressure. The other thing I noticed, when they appointed a head of the National Declassification Center back several years ago, she had a CIA career. That was her career, and then they made her head of declassification. And uh, so, you know, the CIA approach seems to be maximum secrecy that they can maintain, um, but that's antithetical to the archival purpose. You know, this has come up in the foreign relations series of the United States. The State Department is re required by law to have an accurate history of the foreign relations of the United States. And several times they bumped up against secrecy. They couldn't write an accurate history of U.S. foreign relations without access to classified documents. And sometimes they've gotten some released, but it's pushed some of these things to be released. Hmm. It's an interesting field. Uh, you mentioned Susan Williams. I would recommend that anyone interested in Lumumba or Hammerskjold or Africa, look at her work because she's done really good work. Um, she took a document that was released under the 2017 JFK release that was material about WI Rogue and Africa and carefully analyzed it and found a finance report that hadn't been destroyed. 
and they were accounting for car fare for use of personal automobile. And what the document says is WI Road was asked to go to a particular place in the Congo for January 1961, which is when Lumumba was killed. The town that he was sent to is the town they were holding Lumumba as prisoner and where Lumumba was killed. And um, they paid 10 cents a mile for personal car use. And so they owed him 10 cents a mile for this trip. But what it did was reveal that W.I. Rowe was sent to the town where Lumumba was being held prisoner and was killed in the same month, which is contrary to the prior denials that they had anything to do with what was going on. Somebody's lying, or as the Warren Commission people say, it's, oh, it's a coincidence. It's just a coincidence. And those finance records really, you know, reveal a lot. Yeah. Uh, but, Dan, like I said, I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show, man. I'm going to link uh, the AARC uh, link in the description. For, it's hard to say that word, but I'm going to link it in the description for people to be able to find um, we have too many acronyms. We have ARRB, we have AARC. There are probably some I'm missing. But thank you for the work that you're doing because uh, you do a quality product and uh, I hope you got a good audience. We're trying. We're trying. Um, but thanks everybody for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank Podcast and stay tuned for next episode.